and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. It really is a, a pleasure to serve alongside the other elders here at Bent Tree. Um, as Dave mentioned, my name is Wade Williams, and I am one of the shepherding elders here uh, at Bent Tree Church. And if you're not sure what that means, uh, it just means that we have the responsibility to, to care for the congregation, whether that's um, in a pastoral role of just caring for the needs and knowing the people in the congregation, but also uh, to care for everyone spiritually. And that includes things like uh, counseling. Uh, it includes things like visiting people when they're sick or in need, um, helping with uh, facilitating a lot of those things. And then also uh, with the responsibility for uh, preaching and teaching God's word. And so Paul carries uh, the lion's share of that load, but it is a joy to labor alongside him uh, as we preach and teach God's word. And so this morning, uh, I'm actually going to start a little bit of a series in Colossians. And uh, I've had an opportunity to preach here a few times, and there's kind of been a random sermon here and a random sermon there. And I was talking with Paul last week, and it was like, all right, let's, I'm just going to go ahead and dive into a series. So this won't be an ongoing series. It's not something that you're going to hear uh, over the next several weeks or anything like that. But over the next several opportunities that I have to preach here at Bent Tree, uh, I'm just going to start walking through the book of Colossians with you all. Uh, and so that's what we will start with today in Colossians 1 through 14. And so to begin our time together, I'm actually going to read an excerpt from N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop uh, and biblical scholar, his commentary uh, on this passage, in particular these 14 verses. I think it's very fitting as he gives us an illustration to consider as we look at this. So hear what N.T. Wright said uh, in an illustration here. He said, when Susan bought the house, there wasn't much growing in the garden. A few tattily little shrubs, a moldy rose bush or two, a tree that had been bent sideways by a storm and left to grow crooked. It was a depressing sight. After a few days, uh, when she had moved in, a friend came to visit and brought some seeds for the garden. They were special, he said, not what you'd expect. And once you'd sown them and watered them, plants would grow vigorously. And they would quickly cover a large area with beautiful flowers, but that wasn't all. Hidden under the leaves would be a delicious fruit. When that appeared and ripened, then you know the plants had come to stay. Within a week or two, the garden was transformed. And Susan decided to get rid of the old plants and let the new ones flourish. They quickly filled the small space with color and perfume. She telephoned her friend, what on earth is this new plant? It wasn't in any of the garden books she'd ever seen. Ah, he said, it's new. It's transforming gardens everywhere. You are a part of a whole new world. It's a scene like that that Paul has in mind as he starts the short letter that he wrote to the Christians in Colossae. And as we spend our time together today, that image of what is taking place in that garden of a new fruit, a new plant that is taking root and bearing fruit and growing and filling the garden with life and beauty is what Paul is speaking into at the church here in Colossae because we're going to find out today they have truly been transformed by the gospel. And so as we look at this, we're really looking at what is a common part of Paul's letters as he writes to different churches, uh, ones that he founded and ones that he didn't. Paul usually begins with a greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer. 
And those are the three components that we see in this today, that he begins with his personal greeting, he gives thanks, and then beginning in verse 9, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, and he goes into his thanksgiving. So those three components are a very normal part of Paul's letters to the churches. But the letter to the, the Christians in Colossae is actually unique in the way that those things play out. It has the same elements, but those elements are different and unique for the church at Colossae. And one of the reasons why is because Paul has actually never met these Christians. It's one of the few times in the New Testament that Paul is writing a letter to a group of people that he does not personally know. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open uh, up to stay right there in the book of Colossians. We're going to look at several things there. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul here references not only the church at Colossae, but also the church at Laodicea, which was a neighboring church about 11 miles away. And Paul says, hey, neither of you have ever seen me face to face, but I want you to know that I have a great struggle, a burden for you as fellow believers and for all who have not seen me face to face. You see, Paul is typically writing to churches that he knows, ones that he planted would be our modern day vernacular. But in this case, Paul is not the one who planted Colossae. There was another man, a faithful brother and a minister in Christ who actually took the good news of the gospel to the church at Colossae. And so in verses seven and eight, we read this. Paul says, you learned it, speaking of the gospel, from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So it wasn't Paul who took the gospel to the church at Colossae. It was Epaphras. And Paul, you hear the language that Paul uses. One of the things that I love in reading the New Testament is seeing the brotherly love that there is among believers and the cooperation among believers to advance the gospel, that Paul is not disappointed or upset that it was Epaphras who planted a church in Colossae. No, he comes alongside that ministry to encourage and to support the work that Epaphras has already done to make sure that it grows into the fullness that God has for it. And so Paul is writing to a group of people that he has never met before. That is the first way in which this letter is unique. But secondly, Paul gives them a lot of commendations. He's telling them a lot of the things that they're doing well and that they're doing right. And if you're familiar with a lot of Paul's letters, usually when Paul is writing to a group of Christians, it's not because things are going so well. You take 1 Corinthians as an example where the church is in disarray, there's rampant sexual immorality, there's false teaching and all of these different things. And so Paul is writing them to get them back on track. But that's not exactly what we see with the Colossians. And the reason that this stands out is is as I was studying, a lot of commentators really point out that Paul's thanksgiving and his prayer match. So when you start in verse three and you look at verses three to seven, or sorry, three to eight, and then you pick up in verse nine and you look at nine to 12, a lot of the things that Paul is saying in his thanksgiving for the church at Colossae, he's then repeating in his prayer for them. I'm thankful that you're doing this. I'm praying For this, so much so that that many commentators believe that Paul is doing this purposely. It's not just by happenstance that this is taking place, but that Paul is deliberately creating parallels in these verses. And so I just want to point a few of them out to you 
because it gives us a frame of reference for what I think Paul is actually doing in these verses at the beginning of this book. So beginning with the parallels, if you look in verse three, it says, we thank God. Then if you look down at verse 12, as he's closing his prayer, he says, giving thanks to the father. Thanks and thanks. Again, if you look in verse three, he says that we always thank God for you. And if you look down in verse nine, Paul says that we have not ceased. There is a not stopping, an ongoing um, relation to this. We have not ceased. And then there's the idea of prayer in both verses three and nine. When we pray for you in verse three, and then in verse nine, we have not ceased to pray for you. But the prayer, the thanks to God, and the not, st- not stopping the always nature of those things. So you got the thanks that continues, and you have the prayer to the Father. They really circle around two ideas. There's two things that are happening in Colossae that cause this repetition. And one of them is their understanding or their knowledge. And so if you look in verse six, you'll see that Paul says that the truth of the gospel has come to you. It's bearing fruit. But in the, at the end of verse six, he says, since the day you heard it and understood. So there's a, a mental aspect to this. But then when you go to verses nine and 10, you see this same idea come up that you may be filled with the knowledge and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then at the end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. And so Paul is telling the church at Colossae, you know something. You know some things. And then there's the idea that they're bearing fruit. In verse six, the gospel has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. So there's knowledge, there's bearing fruit. And then you can see in verse 10, it says that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So Paul creates these parallels that really hinge around the Colossians understanding and they're bearing fruit. But here's why I think this is so important because it really gives us insight into what Paul is saying here because what he's doing when he's looking at the church at Colossae, he's, he's telling them, you guys are doing it right, keep going. The thing, I'm thankful that you're doing these things. I'm praying that you continue to do these things. Paul is saying, I'm thankful that you're growing in knowledge. Continue to grow in knowledge. I'm thankful that you as a church are bearing fruit. Continue to bear fruit. Don't stop in your pursuit of Christ. And that's one of the reasons that in verse two, Paul refers to them as the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. And much different from our modern day vernacular, when he refers to them as saints, he's not talking about their moral standing. When we talk about it today, we typically, when we call someone a saint, we're trying to say something about their morality or the way that they live their lives. Not so in Paul's day. To be a saint simply meant to be a part of the household of God, to be one of God's people, to be a saint. It was more about their position and where they were positionally than it was about their moral standing. But he even calls the Corinthians saints. But you know what he doesn't call the Corinthians? Faithful brothers. There's a lot going on there that he's got to correct. But when he's talking to the church at Colossae, hey, these are saints and faithful brothers. You're bearing fruit, keep bearing fruit. You understood the gospel, continue to grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is. And so as we look at these things today, uh, as it pertains to the church at Colossae, I want to talk about two things. What is that knowledge and understanding that the Colossians actually have? 
And then number two, what is the effect in their life? What does it mean to bear fruit? So two points to the sermon today. One is the root of what the Colossians have. And then the second one is the fruit that comes out of that. We'll begin with the root. Look back at verse four. Verses four and five. It's very instructive that Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word word of the truth of the gospel. So Paul, in talking about what's happening at Colossae, centers around this idea that Epaphras, this faithful brother, had delivered to them the gospel message. Or as Paul puts it here, the true word of the gospel, the word of the truth of the gospel. And so it it begs the question that we need to kind of stop and talk about here for a minute, which is, what is the gospel? When When Paul says that they've received the true word of the gospel and that that is leading to hope, which is then leading to the other things that are taking place in Colossae. What is this message, the good news of the gospel that Paul is referring to? And we could take a long time to to talk about this and to to parse this out. But I think as, as Christians today, when we hear the word the gospel or the good news, our mind immediately goes to um, the forgiveness of sins, right? The, the salvation of the soul. And there's a lot of things that happen within our understanding of of what exactly the gospel is. And there's a lot of ways to talk about what takes place whenever someone believes the gospel and what we mean by the good news. But Paul uses several different analogies. And so I wanna take a moment here and just talk about a few of the ways that Paul in this letter even explains the gospel message because he uses several different analogies. And so they're gonna be lined out in these verses here. So let's begin with the way that Paul talks about this good news message that the Colossians have believed in verses 12 to 14. It says, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul's first analogy is to say that, hey, listen, there's a real, there's a reality in which we're all a part of the kingdom of darkness. And we'll talk more about what that means in a minute, but that we're outside of God's kingdom because of our sin. And that what God has done is he has actually picked us up from that kingdom and from that domain, that rule, and he has moved us into the kingdom of light because we've been redeemed or purchased away from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. We have forgiveness of our sins is the way that that transfer happens. We move from one kingdom to another. We trade jerseys, we switch teams. Then in verses 21 and 22, Paul talks about it this way. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so Paul takes this other analogy and says, listen, you were hostile in mind, rebellious towards God, doing evil deeds, not following him. And God has taken you from that state through Jesus' death on the cross. And he's made you, he's transformed you into someone who's holy and blameless in his sight. 
The transfer happens because of what Jesus has done. You're above reproach before him. And then one of my favorites in in all of scripture comes in chapter two of Colossians. If you want to flip right over there and look at verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so once again, we get this this message of there's a place where we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet God changes that status. We go from death to life. And how did he do it? Well, every time over, do you hear the refrain in every one of these? Our trespasses, the forgiveness of sins, redemption. All of these things are happening because no matter how you think about the gospel, on a personal level, there is a reality that says that we are dead, separated from God, alienated from God. Those are the three analogies that Paul uses. And through Jesus' death on the cross, Instead of being alienated and hostile to God, we're made holy and blameless. Instead of being in the kingdom of darkness, we're transferred to the kingdom of light. Instead of being dead, we're transferred to alive. And every time, how did he do it? Well, in this case, he took the legal record of all the things that we had done wrong, and he just set it aside. How? He nailed it to the cross. And so at a personal level, the gospel message always says that we have been purchased by God for God. We have been transferred into his kingdom. And that's great. But I feel like a a late night infomercial when I say, but there's more, okay? But wait, there's more. Because one of the common mistakes I think that we make uh, as modern Christians is that we don't have a really holistic view of, of what the gospel means. Because does the gospel mean our personal individual salvation? Absolutely. It is certainly not less than that, but I would submit to you that it is also much, much more than that. So much of our evangelistic efforts and so much of our gospel storytelling, if you will, in the, in the past 50 years or so has turned into nothing more than the personal salvation of the soul and that's it. But the gospel message is not simply that we've been rescued from hell and that's it. Because if we stop there, we miss out on what I think Paul is referring to when he says that the Colossians have a hope that is set before them in heaven that is rooted in the truth of the gospel. Because if our only hope is simply to just be delivered from hell and that's it, it's not the type of hope that Paul is pushing mature believers to see. So I want to take more, there's a, there's a zoomed in personal aspect, forgiveness of my sins is a real reality. Been transferred from one kingdom to the other, that is factual. But what is this new kingdom like? Why is there reason to actually hope for that kingdom, to look forward to, to long for that kingdom? And, and so in order to do this, I'm going to try to go really quickly, 30,000 foot view, big picture story of the Bible. And I work at a Christian school. So we, we do this kind of stuff where we try to help kids even frame their understanding of the Bible 
so that as they're reading through scripture, they kind of have some bookmarks to know where they are in the, in the overall story of scripture. And so I'm going to talk about this in four parts today in the big picture story of the Bible, and that is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Okay, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Because I want us to get a picture of what exactly God is doing in the gospel, and I think it'll give us insight into the real hope that the Colossians have. So let's start in the beginning. Creation. And I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 here to give us a frame for, for what we're talking about. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful. Familiar language? Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God's original purpose to understand the story of the Bible, God's original purpose was for Adam and Eve to create more people who were image bearers in the same way that they were. That's why verse 27 is so important. There's a male and female image bearer of God and then their, their order Their directive from God is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They're supposed to fill the earth with people who bear God's image. And they're not supposed to just propagate there in the garden, but they're they're literally supposed to take the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, which God had set up in the middle of a, a chaotic and wild world. And they're supposed to take that garden and push the boundaries out. Fill the earth. Subdue all that is untamed outside of this garden, Adam and Eve, so that the image bearers of God push that garden until it covers the whole face of the earth. And what you end up with, if Adam and Eve follow this perfectly from the beginning, is a world filled with image bearers of God who are living in a lush, beautiful garden that God has created for them in the presence of God. That's the aim. But it goes wrong. Fall. Adam, in the fall, chooses to follow the commands of Satan. You want to know who your king is? You want to know who your Lord is? Know who your boss is at work? Whose orders do you follow? That's who's in charge. The one whose orders you follow is who's in charge. And so, Adam and Eve together disobey God. They follow the orders of Satan They trade their allegiance and they do what the serpent tells them to do. They're tricked, they're fooled, they're usurped. There's a coup in the Garden of Eden and the serpent comes out on top. And so in Genesis chapter three, instead of being in that garden that God gave them in the presence of God, one of the most horrible things happens. Genesis 3, 23, therefore the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve are kicked out of that domain, that kingdom. They're removed. No longer in the presence of God. But praise be to God, the Bible doesn't end there. There's a a redemption story. And this is where I want to tie the idea of redemption um, from the Old Testament into what Paul is doing here in the book of Colossians. Because in Colossians, there is some similar language that happens here that really points to the fact that, that Paul is alluding to, at a minimum, if not explicitly trying to refer to what happened in, in the book of Exodus. 
I want you to listen to the language in Exodus chapter six, and then I want you to listen to the same redemption language that Paul gives in Colossians chapter one, verses 12 and 14. So Exodus six, uh, verses six through eight. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, from that kingdom. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You hear the language? They were in the Egyptian kingdom and God says, no, 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 I'm I'm bringing you out from that kingdom and I'm transferring you to a new kingdom. I'm gonna deliver you, redeem you, bind you back and I'm putting you in this kingdom where you have an inheritance. And he told the children of Israel, I'm giving you the land that I promised to your forefathers. That's an inheritance. And so Paul, echoing that language in Colossians chapter one in verses 12 to 14 says, give thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The repetition of deliverance or rescue, redemption and inheritance. Paul is tying these two ideas together to show us what it looks like as Christians when we're moved from one kingdom to the other. And then we have new creation. Revelation chapter three. Adam and Eve were with God in his presence in the garden of Eden and they were kicked out. And the reason that we call this not restoration, which is what some people call it. I like to call it new creation because it reminds us that the story ends where it started. The story ends not at a new, far off, distant place, but it ends right back where it began. Listen to the language in Revelation 21, three to four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the hope of the gospel spans creation, fall, redemption, new creation, that the hope really is not just that we'll be saved from hell, but that we'll be in the presence of God forever. And not only that, that we'll also be in the garden again. I want you to look down at at verse 23 of Colossians chapter one, because the scope of the gospel goes beyond simply the human soul. It certainly includes that, but it goes beyond that. Look at verse, the second half of verse 23. Paul says, not moved from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a servant. Now, in some translations it'll read, which has been proclaimed to all creation or the whole creation. So 
I know it, it may sound crazy and I'm not trying to be, you know, we live in Colorado, so I'm not trying to be someone who's, you know, overly into nature and trying to pretend like nature is God and pantheism or panantheism or anything like that. But I want you to understand that the Bible is clear that the gospel is good news for the entire created order. And that's why Paul says here that the good news is proclaimed not just to us, but to every creature on earth. Paul, again, picks up the same kind of language in Romans chapter 8. Some of my favorite verses because they're mildly poetic. But Romans 8, 20 to 23, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, when we fell, it fell. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is, is clear here that the gospel is good news for the entire created order. And, and not to be hyperbolic, I mean this when I say this, that every blade of grass is longing for the return of Jesus. It's not just us. It is the entire created order that we hope for in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when Paul says that the Colossians are filled with a hope, they're not just hoping for the day when they're just set free from their sin. No, they're hoping for a day when everything is made right. As the late Tim Keller would say, when everything sad comes untrue and yet we're all better off for it having happened. The entire created order is redeemed. Friends, I'm hoping for the day when I wake up in the morning and I no longer have a stiff lower back and can barely put my socks on, okay? I'm, I know some of you are looking at me right now like, that's the best you got, <laughs> right? But I'm looking forward to the day when the scorching summer heat doesn't wreck my lawn in Colorado. I'm used to being in Mississippi and there is plentiful rain, not here. The day when I plant a garden and weeds don't immediately take over. And when I'm walking down the sidewalk on a beautiful sunny and 75 day and all along the sidewalk, there are trees ripe with fruit, ready to, desire, to satisfy my desires. When I can sing perfectly in tune with the choir of heaven. And when death is no longer a fear or reality for me or anyone I love. And most of all, when I can finally stop sinning, reminded of the hymn writer's words, when all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more, finished for good, and to see Jesus face to face. Friends, the Colossians have been hit with the hope of the gospel. And there's a way that Paul talks about this that I want to make sure I, I get across here. Because the way that Paul speaks of it, and the way that he talks about hope, and the way that he speaks of the transfer is, is not, he doesn't say that one day you will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
No, he's, it's been done. It's already happened. And Brooke actually read this earlier, but I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. She didn't know this, but in prepping Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is talking about what's already taken place to the Christian. And he says this, he says, speaking of God, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I ain't so good at English, right? But when I see the word seated, that's past tense. It has already been done. Paul uses the same language in Romans 8 when he talks about what happens when he says that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. All of these things have already happened. And so one of the things that I think the Colossians have really grasped here when it comes to their hope in the gospel is the understanding that these things are as good as done. I was talking with with Jerry Shockley about this idea and Jerry was talking about just how the the fact that God is is omniscient, he knows all things. So the fact that we're seated in God, God sees all, there's no time with God, he sees everything at once. And so the fact that God can already see us seated with Christ in the heavenly places means that it's a reality. It's real. Now we sit here and we listen to Paul saying, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm seated in row 10 at Bent Tree Church and I'm sitting next to my husband or my wife, right? No, 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 no. That you are, but at the same time, Paul's clear, you're also seated in the heavenly places. It's done. In the, in the mind of God, he can already see it even if you can't. And so it is a reality that already exists. Your transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, done, happened. Your redemption, justification, glorification, done. It's already happened. And yet it hasn't. And we live in this in-between where we walk in this reality, but at the same time, there's a transcendent reality where Christians are already in God's kingdom. And what I mean by a transcendent reality just means that it goes beyond the physical world. We can't see it, we can't touch it, but it's there. There's this reality that transcends time and space and in that reality, in the mind of God, you're already there, it's done. You're part of God's kingdom, seated with Christ. We have an inheritance there. And so Paul, in in talking about this great, you know, biblical narrative of what's happening with creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation that is to come, and the gospel message of us being transferred into God's kingdom, this transcendent reality of where we already are as Christians, Paul says that all of these things have hit the Colossians, and it's filled them with hope. Not passing weak hope, but real, lasting hope. And so then what happened? They started bearing fruit. The seed of the gospel took root. The hope of the gospel took root. So what happened? They start bearing fruit. Look at Colossians chapter one, verse six, and then down to nine, 12, uh, one, nine to 12. It says, speaking of the gospel, which has come to you. And indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Colossians 1, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So they start bearing fruit and they're called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, growing in their knowledge, strengthened, endurance and patience along the way. But I love the way that the commentator Doug Moo said it when he was speaking of of these things that the Colossians are now doing. Let's be clear, they are doing those things, but Moo says this, the spirit is the source of the wisdom and understanding that the Colossians require as they negotiate their way through the maze of first century worldview options. Because much like us, they lived in a pluralistic society. There was a multitude of worldview options that were before them. And as Christians in their day, and the same for us in our day, we need wisdom and understanding for how to navigate all that is put before us. The smorgasbord of worldview options that we're constantly called into. We'll have a chance to explore those more deeply as we get deeper into the book of Colossians, but they were in a pluralistic society. They needed wisdom to know how to act and live in that that society. But first and foremost, they were to act as members of a different kingdom. Paul wanted them to realize that their kingdom citizenship was somewhere else and that their time on earth, they were ambassadors for a different kingdom as a part of that transcendent reality. Moo continues, The spirit-given insight into the will of God, as important as it is. Say this again. The the spirit-given insight into the will of God, that understanding, that knowledge that they have, as important as it is, is not an end in itself. In other words, it's not the goal just to be filled with knowledge. Paul indicates that the Colossians' mental and attitudinal realignment, the hope they have in the gospel, the change of heart, the change of mind is to produce behavioral transformation. To say it as plainly as we possibly can, the transcendent reality and hope of the gospel change the way we live. Unequivocally. If we see ourselves as seated in the heavenly places, if we understand who we are in Christ, that we are not members of this kingdom here on earth, but we're members of a heavenly kingdom, it absolutely changes the way we live. I want you to imagine this, that someone from a wealthy nation with advanced medical technology and a lot of understanding of the human body decides to build a hospital in a third world nation And they start screening children for atrial defects, holes in their heart, things like that. And then repairing them for free. Someone from a wealthy nation with tons of medical technology and knowledge, they just pick themselves up and they drop themselves in a third world country. They build this hospital and they start doing these medical screenings for free. Well, that's it's a reality. There are people who have done that, right? 
And Samaritan's Purse is one great example. They have a, a hospital where they do this in the Cayman Islands. And I was watching the other day as I was thinking about this idea, a story of a mother, a 14-year-old girl who had a child. And they knew something was wrong with her child. And so they took the child in for the screening. The child had a hole in her heart. And then they realized that there were some genetic complications with that. And they started talking to the mother and the mother had a medical history where she was um, tired, really easy, fatigued, couldn't do the same thing that people her age did. So they screened the mother, holding her heart. So on the same day, a doctor did surgery on both the mother and the child, repaired the hole in their heart so that they can now have long and healthy lives. The, the, child, the life expectancy for the baby went from two to three years to normal, full life expectancy because of the surgery. Okay, so here's a, here's a doctor with a kingdom mindset who says, My, I'm a part of another kingdom, so I'll go to this third world country and I'll do all this work for free. Because while I could be wealthy in the United States of America, or in some other first world country by doing the things that I do here. This world is not my home. And my aim is not to get rich in this kingdom. My aim is to be wealthy in the kingdom of God. And so he leaves and he goes there and he does that. But here's the other reality that takes place. Because he sees himself in that realm. Here's what happens. is because he left a first world nation that had all of that technology. And he went to a third world nation where they did not. The mother... And the child now reap the benefit of that other kingdom. They now are included in the, the benefits and the privileges of the kingdom that he left and came to. In the same way, imagine someone with advanced farming skills. Lots of knowledge of, of chemistry and biology. Leaves a first world nation and goes to an underdeveloped nation where people are struggling to grow crops and feed their families. And he goes in there with knowledge and wisdom and understanding and helps them so that they can bring the created order into submission. That they could fill the earth and subdue it in such a way that it allows for the entire community to be well fed and changes the status of that entire community. His leaving his kingdom and moving into another kingdom, this kingdom now receives all of the benefits of the kingdom that that person left. And so here's the call for us as Christians. I had a, a pastor in Mississippi who used to say this all the time. And it was, it was one of those things that almost didn't really sink in. But he would always say, okay, here's the reality for the Christian. Christian we are part of the end time kingdom of God. The place where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more where the entire created order is under submission. And yet, we're also currently in this physical space. But we understand that that person and this person is connected. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that the end time kingdom of God, through God's people, is, is actually reaching back into human history. A fascinating idea to me, that the, end, the kingdom that is to come actually has tethers back into human history because of the people who are already a part of that kingdom and are walking this earth. And through that connection, this present physical world, our day and time, the spaces that we inhabit it, are receiving the blessings of the future end time kingdom of God by our presence here. Is that the way we walk? 
I mean, I think of the Christians throughout centuries who have done so much good work in Jesus' name. I think of guys like William Wilberforce who abolished the slave trade and the the entire nation of Great Britain was transformed with end-time kingdom of God vision, end-time kingdom of God power, because one man who was connected to that stood in the gap. And he bore fruit because of the hope that he had in a kingdom that is to come and his desire to see this place look like that place. The same is true for us. We are currently part of the future kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is reaching back into human history through us. The transcendent truth of the gospel is powerful and it bears fruit. It transforms people and those transformed people transform the world. See, when Paul uses the phrase, the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, he's pretty clearly referring back to creation. Listen to his language again. The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. And I want you to turn your mind back to Genesis chapter 128. Beginning, middle, beginning. It's good storytelling. Genesis 128 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The true gospel which has come to you and in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so through the gospel, what the apostle Paul is actually communicating to us here is that people are being transformed into the image of God and transferred into his kingdom. They're bearing fruit and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it with the hope of the kingdom that is to come. Here's here's where we really get down to it. That through the gospel, God is fulfilling his original created purpose for human beings. People bearing God's image, filling the earth and subduing it. Through the gospel, it's happening. It comes through our knowledge of God and our transformation. Truth The knowledge that we understand, we know about God, and transformation are the fruit of what Paul refers to here as the true gospel. You want to know, remember N.T. Wright in that analogy at the beginning said that when the fruit is ripe, you know that this fruit has taken root and it's here to stay. You want to know how the gospel has taken root in a person, in a community, in a church, is there truth and transformation? That's when you know it's here to stay. So friends, a couple of things to consider today. Do you see yourself as currently part of the kingdom of God? One, are you? Is that true of who you are? And two, is that how you imagine yourself as you walk throughout your day? And is that thought of who you are as currently a member of the kingdom of God changing the way you live in this world? Seeking to bring God's kingdom to bear 
on the time and space in which we live. Because if we are, that is the primary way in which we are a testimony to the watching world that the gospel we believe in is true. That it's the true gospel. When we're equipped with truth and transformation. Doug Moo summarizes it well. He says, the gospel is authenticated. We know it's real. Not by its truth only, nor by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. May the truth and fruit of the gospel be evident in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story that you're writing in human history and the way that you've clearly communicated it to us. And so, Father, I just pray for each and every one of us today that we would recognize ourselves as people whom you have redeemed. Lord, and that we would walk on this earth realizing that you have given us the responsibility to bear fruit for the gospel, to share the good news with others, to live as those who have a hope not for this world, but for the kingdom that is to come. And Father, we also pray for anyone who's here today who doesn't know you, who hasn't been transferred into your kingdom, that they would recognize today their need for you, that their rebellion against you means that they are not a part of your end time kingdom and that they would come with repentance and faith to Jesus to be redeemed, to be bought back. And so God, I just pray that even as we sing to close our service today, that we would do it with an eye towards you, with gratitude for the hope and good news of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.